Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do lists one week at a time. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me is my co-host, Sam. Joining us today is the mistress of all things horror, Melissa from the Wild Pretty Things podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. And I love my title, which is funny, considering I had to do a lot of Googling to determine what a creature feature entailed. Like, <laughs> is there rules? Is there parameters? I hadn't seen any of these movies before. <laughs> yeah. So uh, as you mentioned, our theme this week is creature features because it is Spooktober. Sorry. It is Spooktober 3, Son of Spooktober. So Thanks for coming on for our second week of Spooktober. I think Before- I accidentally called it Spooktober 2 in an episode of Wild Pretty Things recently. So future uh- apologies. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. That was Bride I of missed Spooktober. a season. <laughs> Spooktober 2 is the one where Damien's a teenager and still doesn't die. And then Spooktober 3 is where Sam Neill plays an adult Damien. Ah, uh, I see. I see. <laughs> Before we get into our theme for this week, though, I did want to check in with you, Melissa, and see what what spooky content have you been interacting with lately? What have you been watching, listening to, reading? Yeah, um, I have mostly been watching spooky stuff so far. I started with um, these three films, and then Jarrett and I watched The Blazing World and Let the Right One In for our podcast, and then I did The Hocus Pocuses. I think this week I'm going to go into the Halloweens and do a selective watch of some Halloween films. Yeah, but other than that, I haven't really gotten deep into spooky season yet i'm definitely planning on doing the shining and dr sleep double feature which i can thank monkey off my backlog for because i watched the shining for spooktober last year dr sleep is excellent it really is but this week we're talking about creature features so this is originally a genre of horror tv format shows broadcast on local u.s television stations in the 1960s 1970s 1980s. We're definitely going to talk about the history of this at some point during this podcast. But the creature feature as a term has sort of evolved into a catch-all for lots of different horror films about monsters. You know, anything that has like a creature in it tends to to be called a creature feature. But I wanted to start this with the question of what makes films about creatures or monsters so enduringly popular? There are so many of these films and there's so many different people who get to take on these creatures. I think people may be like thinking to themselves, if I was minding my business and a creature showed up, I could take it. Yeah. <laughs> I would do all these things that these people do in these films. And I I could take a creature if one popped out. <laughs> so it's kind of like, what was that? Uh, there's a study that went around in on Twitter like a couple, I think it was a couple weeks ago. It's popped up every once in a while. That's like, it's like ranking different countries on what animals that they think they could take. And the U.S. Oh constantly, God. like too many people in the U.S. think they could take a grizzly bear in a fight. Like yeah. way too yeah. many people. Yes. <laughs> yes. Or like people who think they could fight a kangaroo, like that type of thing. <laughs> yeah. No, that kangaroo is going to kick the shit out of you. Like, don't. <laughs> yeah. So maybe I think that creature features are enduringly popular because of like humanity's hubris to, to think yeah. that they could be above uh, like a predator or an alien or a black lagoon creature or 
a host. <laughs> yeah, like we think that we we could figure it out. Like they these these characters are are dumb. They can't figure it out, but we would we would totally survive. Yeah. I want it personally, but <laughs> <laughs> two things. One, this is so a lot of the creature features, not to say that any existed before, but the creature feature became a popular thing during the nuclear age. Right. So a lot of the creatures are radioactive. And then the second thing is, as Stephen King says, horror films are great when you can see the monster because, and this was true when he wrote it, which was in the 80s, whenever you see a monster on screen, you can almost always see the zipper or something mm. else that gives away that it's fake. And so the idea about horror movies, movies that don't terrorize you, not like The Exorcist, but movies that are horror movies with like a creature or a slasher or a vampire, you know, all the stuff that got made in the 30s during the Depression, they're there because you can see the scary thing. And being able to see the scary thing, you still get those jump scares and you're like, ah, but at the end of the day, you know you're safe because you can see the thing that's scary. Whereas you can't see the depression. Right. And so creature features became such a big deal in the nuclear age because I can see nuclear fallout. And if we can defeat the giant ants, <laughs> we can defeat all nuclear threats. Please do not make us watch Dr. Strangelove again. Right. Right? Because that's more terrifying, really. Although it's comedy. But the third thing, because there's always three, right? One of my favorite uh, Dr. Demento's greatest hits. You know, Dr. Demento had the radio show where Weird Al got a start, right? Novelty records, things like that. There's a song called uh, The Cockroach Who Ate Cincinnati. That's it's a, right. It's a great song. And then Weird Al's got a song, Attack of the Radioactive Hamsters from a Planet Near Mars. <laughs> but like they're always you know they're never meant to be taken so seriously like even though godzilla who is a creature has you know there's a very serious message there and th that's echoed in the host right but there are still parts where you laugh where you laugh at it yeah i think too that this comes from a tradition of frankenstein which we're gonna mention a couple of frankenstein films but the idea that mary shelley introduces in her novel Frankenstein is that there's this tension between humans and nature, right? And the more that humans mess with nature, the more nature is going to mess back. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think that there's also, I agree with you about the atomic anxiety, but I do think it's even older in the sense of we're afraid of, it comes from a fear of science and like, how do you know science has gone too far, right? Well, you know it's gone too far when a creation of science is trying to kill you, right? So that's be that artificial made man or Tyrannosaurus Rex. Yeah. <laughs> so like it's it's a very interesting legacy of like even the original science fiction that was very concerned with the effects of humans and the way that they were subjugating nature and not necessarily respecting like their own limits in science, mm -hmm. which I think is very interesting. Have you guys seen Nope? Have not, not yet. Not yet. Okay. On our list on, for this month. Yeah. yeah we're That's planning all... on watching it this month. Okay. <laughs> uh, my other question before we get into the creature from the Black Lagoon, which is our first film up here, is do all creature features have monster vision? 
Like this was something I was trying to figure out if this was like a staple of the genre or not. I kind of think yes, because when I was watching the host, I was waiting for it and I was like, oh, maybe, maybe they're not going to do this, but they do. It's at the end, but just a little moment. And I'm like, oh, there it is. He's yeah. got eyes. <laughs> it's just, it's fascinating to me that this has become like a visual trope, like the, of like, you know, just like you have to have a moment where you see like the, the camera is like the eyesight of the, of the monster. And usually it's distorted in some way. Like it's either shaky or it's blurry or, you know, there's some kind of filter. Like over in Predator, it. they have their like night vision and their like yeah. eyeball display. I had a moment watching Creature from the Black Lagoon where I was like, oh, this is where those movies got the things. <laughs> yeah. Which, because I'm always watching, I'm always watching the film canon backwards uh, because right. I came to film watching late. So it's always fun. My references are always backwards, but I'm watching Creature from the Black Lagoon and I'm like, oh, they're doing the Predator thing. And in my mind, I'm like, flip that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait. Predator's that. doing the Creature from the Black Lagoon thing. <laughs> you know, Tessa, the thing about Monster Vision, I'm there is a film that has yet to be made that would have great Monster Vision. Which is? As you know, the thing that was novelized and then turned into countless films, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, was the result of that ghost story night in Geneva. What I would really like to see, because I think it would have great Monster Vision again, is an adaptation of Percy Shelley's story, The Boobs Have Eyes. Yep. <laughs> I, I like how, I think, I really want, I really wish there was a better historical record of this, but I think, like, his entire story was Boobs Have Eyes. Yeah, it was. The story she, tells itself. I'm I think gonna, that was all he said. I'm not going to lie. She very clearly won that contest in a way where there wasn't any competition, like, with her novel at the all. Boobs Have Eyes. Not at all. I have feelings about Percy Shelley. That is a different. I'm going to see how many times I can say that during the rest of Spooktober. The boobs have, the eyes. have eyes. Well, let's let's talk about the creature from the Black Lagoon. Sam, do you want to introduce this movie uh, for I, us? I could, I could. And so, <clears throat> so this has been an ongoing project. This is now our third um, Spooktober. Thanks. This is our third Spooktober, and so. I started a project. I started two projects during the first Spooktober, one of which was to watch Black Mirror. I will pick that one up again someday. The second one, I mean, I did it twice in a row. I'm just not doing it this year. Thought about it. Didn't. But the other one was making some more progress on these original universal monsters. Broadly defined, at least by home media release, there are six universal horror OG monsters, right? The first wave was Dracula in 1931. That was Todd Browning directing, Bela Lugosi, Dracula. Same year, Frankenstein, you have James Whale. Boris Karloff is the monster. They should have stopped there, but they didn't because they made The Mummy the next year in 32, which also has Boris Karloff as the monster. But instead of going back to Browning or Whale, both of whom exude competence in their own very special ways, they hired Carl Freund, who was successful at many things, just not directing. That movie sucked. <laughs> that is the worst of the six. Let's be clear, very clear about that right now. 
The next year, 1933, they thought, let's just try this again, but let's hire a competent James Whale. And into the fold, they brought Claude Rains, who is also a very great actor. So The Invisible Man, which is their collaboration, is very good. It's what I talked about last year. It's excellent. Claude Rains is just, he dominates that film. He's so good in it. I haven't seen the original. Did you guys like um, the recent remake of The Invisible Man with Elizabeth Moss? Oh, yeah. Yes, that it was, was very good as well. Much better than the original. Yeah, sure. I mean, I there's... Oh, fun. I love it, too. Yeah. I, so I was curious. Yeah, it it's is good. better it's than the original. It's a good to watch. I mean, I the mummy should just be, like, never watch that. But the Invisible Man's a good watch. I've never seen the mummy. The others skip, I would say. <laughs> and if you're a completionist, you're not going to skip them anyway. But if you're not, skip the Wolfman. So the Wolfman comes out 10 years after Dracula. So it's 1941. It is Claude Rains and Bella Lugosi. Seems good. And lots of people go on about how Lon Chaney Sr. and Jr. are great creature actors. I hated the Wolfman. And I hate it for one reason among any other. Don't name your allegedly terrifying monster Larry. (laughs) I cannot take you. You're a werewolf, but your name's Larry. I don't care about you. Go away. Come back when you're not an idiot. The only character that's allowed to be named Larry is that little vegetable in whatever. Veggie Tales. <laughs> yeah. I mean. Larry the Cucumber. This guy is just. Oh, my God. He's just. Oh, I hated it so much. And so that's all prologue to where were we going to end? was Creature from the Black Lagoon, the last of the six that was made, because it was made in 1954, and the last of six that I had ever seen. Was it going to be good, bad, or truly ugly? (laughs) The first thing you need to know is none of the people that I've mentioned were in Creature from the Black Lagoon. It is considered up there, the creature is, with Frankenstein's monster, Dracula, the Wolfman, the Invisible Man, and the Mummy. Whether or not it should be, I don't know. But maybe the fact that nobody affiliated with these movies made Creature from the Black Lagoon, maybe that's a good thing. The It's directed by Jack Arnold, who did It Came from Outer Space and Tarantula, one of those. So more, more creature features. Yeah, lots of TV. Like This is a very competent director who knows the genre. And, and basically, this movie is about scientists who find this black lagoon where a creature is. And, of course, because they're humans, they try to ruin it. Yeah. That's the plot. <laughs> that, that is kind of the plot. Pretty yeah. much. What was your first impression of it, Sam? This movie has the following. You need to, to me, the best way to understand it is not the plot of the movie, but to understand the cast breakdown. There are four doctors. <laughs> right? There is an ex- a, a, a exuded competence to the power of four. You have Dr. Carl, who is, who is the kindly older doctor who discovers the first fossil that leads to all this. There's Dr. David. He's the main character. There's Dr. Mark, who is a dick. <laughs> Just a dick. It's Just a worst. terrible person. Of course, he's the one with the money and the supervisory control. And the gun. Yeah, we'll get there. I would say he's like the most conventionally attractive of them, too. You know, he's like kind of younger. He's like very yeah. handsome. 
It's hard they to tell a black and white. It's always the dick that's like yep. the hottest. I mean, and, and the thing about him is, well, we'll get to him in a little bit. And then Dr. Edwin, who is the one who's going to get like creature creeped on the whole movie. Like he's the nice guy and you know what's going to happen to him. You just know. And two actors play the creature, who's a humanoid fish thing. Huh. Ben Chapman is the creature on land, and Rico Browning is the creature underwater. Because large parts of the movie were shot underwater, and that's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. I'm saving for last the real star of the movie, Julie Adams as Kay. She is a scream queen and a mannequin for all the outfits. (laughs) Yeah, every single scene in this, she is wearing a different outfit, and I, I am here love for this. it. Like even scenes that take place like twenty minutes apart from each other in film time, it's like she has to go change. And and, and I just have to say, like I I I constantly, the farther the years go by, the con the more I have appreciation for high waisted clothes. Right. And and she is apparently a big believer in these things. So I mean, so was the code, but that's not the point. <laughs> the point is, she makes it work. What was your first impression of this film, Melissa? I loved this movie. I liked it a lot. I should say, while I was watching it, I liked it a lot. And I loved it more on like thinking back to it and thinking about like where I've seen other films take from this movie. My like main headline thought was like, oh my gosh, like... They could film underwater in 1950-whatever? Like, that is so impressive. I had no idea. And the scene of them swimming in tandem with each other, like, obviously, that's one of the most gorgeous things I've ever seen on any TV. Yeah, that's where they're swimming parallel, where she's on the top of the water, and he's, like, right underneath her. Yeah, it's gorgeous. It just makes him seem... It makes him seem like such an innocent little fish guy. Like, he just wants a little swimming friend. He's, like, afraid to touch her. He just is, like... <laughs> my, like, t- first takeaway after finishing this movie was kind of, like, I mean, you just have to ask people if they want to go on dates with you. Yeah. Like, that's all. <laughs> you just have to ask with how. your words. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I got a lot of, like, King Kong vibes from parts of this film. Like, the original King Kong, because... Like, he clearly, there are moments where he's, like, carrying her, he's, like, trying to carry her off into his cave, and, like, you know, it just felt very much like those scenes with, you know, creature, creature wants to kill all the men, but, like, wants to take the woman away, like, and take care of her, or I mean, I get that. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I, I guess I, I get I, I understand too, the impulse. Yeah, <laughs> so I, I definitely got that as well. I will say, though, that my favorite character who we haven't talked about yet is the boatman. I'm trying to remember his actual name, but the guy who owns the boat. And he's Slouchy just... make chills out? Yeah, he's just, like, hanging in the background, and but he's, like, in every shot with the scientists, and they're all arguing science around each other, and then he just will, like, enter the conversation with, like, the most, like, ridiculous question. <laughs> like, he'll just be like, wait, so what does that mean? Or okay, have you decided what we're going to do yet? Like, like he's just, like, very chill about this whole situation. Like, I want to know what his daily life is like, where this is just, like, another day on the job. Um, He kind of reminded me of Pilot Lapidus from Lost, who, like, just kind of ends up there and is like, well, I'm here now. <laughs> yep. You're going you're gonna to get a whole, like, 
That is that is his sole role. You've already seen it in parts of season four. It's magnificent. Yeah, I, I love him so. I much. I did not make that connection before, but you're absolutely right. That is this character. It just yeah, he's just hanging out on the boat, and like the scientists are getting all into it, and he's just like, "All right, like we're we're here. What do you want me to do?" Like, <laughs> I'm just Lucas. The boat guy. His name is Lucas. Lucas. Yeah, boat, boat guy. guy. Boat guy. There's some real thigh action in this film, both on the part of uh, of Julie Adams, but then all of the main male characters, with the exception of Dr. Carl, at some point wear shorts that are like very, very short. And we get to see a lot of like very strong thigh swimming. In yeah, this I mean, the gill <laughs> man's kind of like a thick boy. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he 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 is definitely. I was reading some of the stuff about the filming of these shots, and like, apparently, the suit that they made was like so like thick and hot that Ben Chapman basically like had to keep getting hosed down, like why? Because they were doing a lot of these shots on like the back lots in Universal. I think you should say that entire like couple of sentences again, like ASMR style. Yeah, <laughs> being hosed down. And then uh, Riku Browning was like holding his breath for up to like four minutes at a time to do like the the shots underwater, which I think is excellent. But there's also a story about like they were swimming in the lagoon and like a turtle stole part, like snapping turtle, like grabbed part of the suit and like ran away with it. And they all had to like chase it to get Their it creature back. movie got creatured. Yep. That turtle was like, this is mine now. <laughs> How dare you ap- appropriate my pond? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of really interesting technical things going on in this movie. And like you said, Melissa, the fact that they were able to shoot a lot of this stuff underwater, it reminds me a lot of Thunderball, which of course came out like a decade later. But the idea that I, I just, I'm a sucker for a movie that does underwater stuff, like that does action scenes underwater. And there's a lot of that in this. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that you're describing about the actual technical making of the movie is there's, this is definitely a good example of competence porn yes. in filmmaking. Not the people on screen. I mean, at all. I, like Kay kind of, because she's like, I don't really care oh, well, about yeah. all this drama. I'm going swimming. Like, I'm not wasting yeah. a beautiful <laughs> day on this lake. <laughs> I can do science yeah. and have fun. Of course, when you when you know when I said there was a lot of incompetence on screen, of course I wasn't talking about her. Of course, not. right, 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 right. Pretty much everybody else, though. I mean, Doctor Carl. Like we just watched New Nightmare. There's a scene where one of the first murders happens in a car, and the coroner is like, "He he was a bad car accident." I'm like, I don't know what car accident you would have. That has like claws. This guy was clearly murdered by a claw. (laughs) A whole handful of claws on his chest. Would you explain to me what kind of car accident, like maybe in Jurassic Park? (laughs) And so like, I think of this as the new nightmare award for, yeah, sure. That was a jaguar who killed him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. It was a big cat. I will say that was my one big complaint about this movie is that all the brown people died. Is that like there are a lot of brown people. Most yeah. of them die. Like I think there's only like one white person who gets isn't, seriously injured. Isn't that funny to think about the fact that the place like we're still making movie. We're still making movies. 
where the place where the brown people live, the white people come to, and it's the white people who are safer and know what they're doing more than the... I don't get that. Yeah, although I will say, like, I... This is also very much a movie about the Amazon as a river and, like, the... Like, just how beautiful it is and how dangerous it is. And I don't feel like... One, we get a lot of movies like this anymore. A Jungle Cruise is probably the last one I can think of that has like a river like this where it's it's like that. But And two, it's kind of interesting to see this from the perspective of people who weren't like actively, like capitalists weren't actively trying to destroy the rainforest at this well, point. Well, they so, weren't trying to destroy it, but it was like, oh, there's a secret nature place. Let's find it and steal something from it. Yeah. I was surprised. I don't know why I was surprised, why I continued to be surprised by this type of thing. But I was surprised that one of the like key conflicts was between like science for money and science for the virtue of doing science and discovering things, which it's like, of course it is because we've always been how we are. But also it's like, wow, I mean... (laughs) How long ago? And we still haven't solved this problem. We still haven't figured out that, like, we should not be doing the things for money. Like, right. it's the it's the Indiana Jones conundrum. It belongs in a museum. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It which, is the Indiana Jones, which is conundrum. still very imperialist, right? Right. But because no, it doesn't. It belongs right where it is. <laughs> God damn it. Yeah. And it's but it is interesting. <laughs> you put that, that back. Like, it is interesting that Mark, who is this like capitalist scientist who's all about getting those grants, which anyone who works in academia like hates this person. Like they're the people who are always like, get those grants, get like fund yourself and like yeah, I called you, this... you're gonna make the university look good. And Yeah, in the notes I called the science party fouls. Yeah. And <laughs> he it's interesting that he's the one who wants to kill the creature because he sees it as like an opportunity to, I don't know, like get glory in like destroying this glory. thing. You know, it's it's very much hunter culture, right? Like he wants it as a trophy, whereas David wants to capture it. Yeah, because he wants to like further their knowledge and study of study it. But for for the other guy, for Mark, it's like proving the creature is real is good enough, and like that just feels like sad science to me (laughs) like you're not learning anything you're just bragging I also thought it was interesting that it's 1954 and this film is embracing evolution as like a scientific fact like at the at a time in which the U.S. was having these huge like controversies about teaching evolution in schools and like all of that stuff. And so it's just, it's fascinating to me that not only are they like, yeah, this is evolution. This is how it works. This is how dead ends and evolution works. And also the ways in which David wants to study the creature in order to learn more about like human evolution and mm, human mm-hmm. adaptability. I all, all those are very interesting ideas that I think get explored in other films later. Because he even brings up space, like this idea of like, learning how to adapt ourselves so we can go to other planets. I enjoy that this is not a very long film, but it feels like it is. Yes. And I in not a in not in a bad way. I yeah, I can't put my finger on how they do that. But this movie's like less than 90 minutes if I'm remembering correctly, but I didn't feel like I was watching like an extended TV episode, you know, it's very firmly a movie. I think part of that is just like leaning into this idea that there are layers to these characters too, mm-hmm. which I I appreciate. I was not a fan of the fact that their first 
their first instinct when trying to capture the creature was to pollute a lagoon in the middle of the Amazon. Yeah. Like, is that real? <laughs> Did people really fish like that? Yeah. I have no idea. Me either. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I shouldn't be surprised, yeah. but at the same time, I'm like, don't you think that you're only going to get to do this once? <laughs> like, I don't know. That scene where all the fish are like floating on top of the water is genuinely horrifying to me. Like, more so than the creature itself, where I'm just like, why? Why? <laughs> well, you know, and it, this that happens in the host. Yes. Again, mm-hmm. it kind of happens in the thing. I mean, that's really a very different film. But, right. but this idea of like, I mean, it's also kind of an atomic era thing, right? Like, if we use the weapon we have available to us, ain't nobody going to be living here for a while. I mean, it's the same thing. I mean, mm-hmm. you right. can kind of see how those two things go together. But I like that at no point until it became impossible for them to leave with the creature did they think, maybe we should just, like, leave him here. <laughs> like, like nobody was just ever like, maybe we should just, like, study him. Yeah, just take a sketch while he's and then here. We'll head on home. <laughs> yeah. Here's a crazy idea. Let's ask for consent. Yeah. It's just hey, like, nobody hey. tries to communicate with him or anything Although I will say there's this really funny scene. It was not intentionally funny, but like where they do have him captured on the boat and they have like that makeshift like water cage for him. And he's just like sitting there stunned, I guess, because of the drug or whatever. But his eyes are like all the way open and he just it is so creepy and like funny at the same time where he's just he looks stoned out of his mind. (laughs) And it's it's hilarious. Just to go real quick back to the thing about evolution. So there's a monologue at the beginning before we get to the action. And the monologue begins with, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. So let's not go all the way on the evolution bus. We're, we're, taking, the, we're taking the creationism highway to acceptable evolution. Right. Because after that, they say... This is the planet Earth, newly born and cooling rapidly from a temperature of 6,000 degrees to a few hundred in less than 5 billion years. So God made the Big Bang, kids. Yeah, I I mean, I don't know if they could have even shown this movie if they hadn't put in like, oh, yeah, God did evolution. But no, like, just remember, there are lots of scientists out there who think who these two theories that. are not competing right. at all. But I, I do think that the focus of this film is on evolution and mm-hmm. like how different, different creatures. It's very much about like that natural selection, like how certain creatures succeed, certain creatures die out and then certain creatures are able to survive, but they don't evolve any more than they already have. Yeah. That, that whole, like, you know, that saying, like I've forgotten more things than you'll ever know. Mm-hmm. Well, we've destroyed more species by burning the rainforest down than we'll ever know. Right, exist absolutely. Today. Like, I mean, that's the whole thing. There are so many that are undiscovered still and that never will be. And I mean, that's the draw of this film. Like, even at that point, obviously, that was a known thing. Like, how much the Amazon is something we don't know about. Much like Jeff Bezos' Amazon, where we don't know a lot about what's happening there. But unlike that, in the Amazon rainforest, some of it's good. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that it's it's a very interesting film when talking about like our relationship with the environment because again, there's a way that you can read the creature as being a metaphor for the environment, for 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 the natural world trying to fight back, right, against yeah. being studied, being exploited, being harmed, right? And so it's it, it is a very interesting metaphor to explore. And and so you know, I'm sure the dark universe is going to come up multiple times in the next few weeks. We've already alluded it to it once. While I was reading up on this, I was presented with something that made me very upset. As you as you can certainly imagine, they were in fact planning to remake this movie as part of probably part of the dark universe. We could have had Scarlett Johansson as Kay. And Chris Evans. I don't know. Would he have played main character Dr. David? Or the credit stealing, putting the crew in danger, being a jackass and bad boss, basically a reprise of his character from Knives Out. We could have had either one of those. When I read this in the notes, I thought he was going to be the creature. <laughs> I, the point is, basically, you could have Scarlett Johansson and Chris Evans like play every other role. I and would it love still would have been better. It still would have been better. Than any dark universe film, not except the one with Elizabeth Moss, <laughs> except for that one. And this is your fault, Universal. You took it away from us. <laughs> it could have been good. It would have been the Winter Soldier, but with the creature. <laughs> um, oh, we have to. No, we should put Bucky in the suit. I would love yeah, that. Just, just make it a whole thing. Get the guy who played Crossbones back to play one of the play the dick. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I read this and I, I mean, was like, "Oh, Chris Evans in the creature shoot? Like that's the Black Lagoon's ass." <laughs> <laughs> Any studio executive who ever wants to listen to this podcast, we just give ideas away for free. <laughs> For free. Um, there's allegedly still a Wolfman remake, uh, the untitled Wolfman film starring Ryan Gosling, like allegedly still happening. It was originally going to be directed by Lee Winnell, who directed The Invisible Man, uh, which I was really excited about. But he's been replaced with the man who directed The Place Behind the Pines, which I don't actually remember that film other than it being like extremely depressing. And I also didn't write this man's name down. So like maybe we're getting more of these. You hated the original. I don't think they're planning on changing his name. So that's not great news. <laughs> uh, the Benicio movie is not good either. The, the half of it I was awake for. <laughs> I mean, Jesus. Come on. I do I, have to ask, uh, do you have any favorites of Kay's outfits? I feel like this is a great ranking opportunity. I mean, I, I'm a fan of her know, white that's the thing, swimsuit. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, no, that's I was the one I remember. In an Amazonian link. Yeah. I was just thinking about the shorts. She does wear some really great white shorts. I really like the one where she ties the flannel shirt mm-hmm. around herself. Mm-hmm. Like, that was mm-hmm. pretty cool, too. She She's so bold hats. to wear so much white on a science expedition. Yeah, I know. I can't like, even wear white to dinner. And wear that much white? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I Fashion think that that's icon important. that we didn't know we needed. Okay, so since you have now watched all of these Universal ah, films, Sam, okay. I do need to rank that list from you. So uh, ranking that list from six to number one. Okay, so the bottom, number six, is the trash fire. 
The Mummy, The Orientalist Trash Fire. Yeah. It's very racist. <laughs> like, very, very racist. I, don't, I, I, think, I think you have an idea of Egypt in your mind that, I don't know, parts of those things might have been true, just not at the same time. I don't know. Number five is The Wolfman. For reasons you have mentioned. Yeah, for reasons I have mentioned. <sighs> Although I will say, by the way, if, if Ryan Gosling wolfs out eventually, that would be fine. However, I, I, I've been working on this a lot lately because unfortunately, as you know, I can't get away from the wizard books because I'm writing about them. Right. But one of the things that's very interesting in the wizard books, of course, now we give her no credit for the things she did, is that lycanthropy is kind of code for gay men who have AIDS. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I'm not the one who brought this up in in scholarship, but but it's almost a perfectly mapped metaphor. Is is how you know the the, the werewolves are morally deficient. They are societally ab- socially aberrant. And they carry a disease. Mm-hmm. Figure that one out. Of like catching it. Right. Right. Yeah. And so basically, what she does is she marries that guy to the trans woman and then kills them. Right. It's kind of like we should have known maybe a little bit better about her. I think a lot of us had pieces and we didn't put them together because we wanted to have good faith. The point to all that is, is I would love to see a better version of that. I think the I think you can use all of these monsters in a way that is a bigger metaphor. Right. I mean, I think James Whale did. Um, well, that's why the 1931 Frankenstein is a classic. Well, right, that's what I'm saying. So I mean, I think that if they if if instead of trying to launch an MCU for monsters, maybe you go, you know, the invisible man route. Mhm. You know, like the Elizabeth Moss version, and do something with it. Don't just try to make a franchise out of it. Don't just try to remake it. Remake it with some sort of point of view. And if you come to it with the right point of view and idea, the terror and the horror will take care of themselves. Right. Right. So I just those those two are just not good. Um, I think it's really hard. I think the only real place I have trouble here is three and four with the Invisible Man, or the creature. And I don't know. In my I, I I think creature is not as good as the invisible man, but I'm still gonna put Invisible Man at four and Creature at three. Okay. They're both good. They both have things to say. But I I mean we've talked about I think we had more positive things to say about this movie. And if you went back and checked the check the tape from last <laughs> year, I think we actually had more positive things to say about this one. Okay. And and I I put, just love Claude Rains' performance in the Invisible well, Man. Great. So it's just he's like great. yeah. Claude Rains is a great dude. Actor. I don't know. Maybe he was a terrible dude. I don't know. We should we should stop mapping goodness onto people just because they're good actors. I don't right. know how many times we have to be taught that lesson. That's the real horror. I put Frankenstein at number two. I know it's your favorite. So Dracula is your Dracula's number one. Dracula's number one, man. Vibes. Vibes, vibes for all you people. For all you bisexual lighting people who go on and 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 on some more about vibes only, how could you justify anything but Dracula number one? Dracula, Bella Lugosi, the king of vibes and heroin, but mostly vibes. (laughs) 
I don't even need to know my lines. I'll read them phonetically I... because vibes only. Yeah, he Tessa. was definitely vibes only. I, d- I have to say, though, that like I was tickled to find out that in 1931, when Dracula came out, that this was like a like a Beatles One Direction yeah. situation where like the entire audience was women because they loved Bela Lugosi <laughs> so much. And like all of these men were just like, I have Listen. to compete with that. <laughs> Listen, but you know, we, we definitely know people who are advocates for the Spanish Dracula. And this is a good place to bring up. And I will stop talking. I promise. This is a really good place to bring up the fact that Universal had such a good plan for this because during the day, Browning, Lugosi, and friends shot Dracula. And then at night, <laughs> then at night, they shot the film again with a different cast and crew. That's right. The Spanish language Dracula was shot at night. It's the same movie shot at night. And I haven't watched it yet, but I I just want to know how the vibes shift. Yeah, like, like is it a different vibe? Like, this when is like night? a yeah. I feel like you're gonna be able to see like unhinged energy behind everybody's eyes that you just know that they're working. <laughs> this is, at this night. is all I want. <laughs> you know, I don't. I think you can tell very quickly. By the way, I'm gonna say this now, because. And you could really say this about any time we talk about movies on this podcast, but you can tell very, very quickly if the movie has queer vibes or it doesn't. Oh, yeah. And almost right? all the Universal I mean, what you do. don't know is we talked about Blonde a long time before we started <laughs> recording today. And I, I, the thing we're getting to, I think, is that if a movie doesn't have very clear queer vibes within the first few minutes, you should probably just turn it off. <laughs> don't need it. Right? Not, not for me. Yeah. Not, not for me. So the top three movies on my universal horror list are definitely all, all queer, queer vibes. Well, and James Whale was Whale. a gay man. I mean, he was closeted, but like right. he he was very much a believer in the gay vibes in his films. That's all I'm saying. So we've been talking about universal films and ranking them and so on. But I did want to, before we get to the next film, talk just very briefly about how impactful Universal as a studio was on the creature feature genre. Because the first creature features were broadcasts of the classic universal horror films like Dracula, Frankenstein, and The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Basically, in the late 50s, Screen Gems released a bundle of old universal horror movies to syndicated television, and they named the collection Shock. And they encouraged the use of hosts for broadcasts. This is fascinating to me, because if you go to like the Wikipedia page, they actually have a really detailed list of like by region in the United States, like who was hosting, because they would use like local hosts. And so this is where you get the progenitors of, uh, who was the first one who did that? The ancestor of Elvira, who some of us, you know, grew up with seeing, I think by the point that I knew who she was, she was an institution at this point. But Lisa Marie plays in the Edward biopic. She plays Vampira who was the the um, the TV show host who got sucked in to Ed Wood's world, as did Bella Lugosi at the end of his life, by the way. Right. So, yeah. So you would get people, like pers- local personalities, basically, that would like don these like creepy personas, and they would host these late-night television reruns, basically, of these old Universal horror films. 
and the it was so well beloved like people loved watching these films for a lot of people this was their first introduction to these films because they hadn't been alive obviously when the original films came out and because this was like when syndicated television was really taking off and people had more access to television they were able to really appreciate these things they also uh released a son of shock package in 1958 which i thought was funny since we've been calling this son of spooktober (laughs) but the creature features was another film package that was released in the early 60s and then they kept adding to it uh, over the next couple of decades so the films in this package ranged from horror and science fiction films of the 50s british horror films of the 60s japanese giant monster movies like godzilla and uh, you know a lot of those radioactive like type of creatures we were talking about it also funnily enough included an uncut print of night of the living dead so you get like all of these different syndicated television packages that were airing usually on Friday or Saturday night, like around eight or nine o'clock. But in some cities it was aired on Saturday afternoons, alternating it with Kung Fu theater and bikini theater. Um, And a lot of people think that because it aired after the traditional Saturday morning cartoon time block, it introduced a lot of teenagers to these classic monster movies because they would watch their cartoons and then you would watch like a creature feature. And so that's where this term became really popularized was, you know, the idea of like, oh, like this is a creature feature, which I mean, there are a lot of them by the time that they got, we get to the seventies at that point. When I was in college, AMC, when I was in college, AMC was still commercial free. First of all, second of all, I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, they were Turner classic movies before Turner classic movies, but they used to have such good spooktober programming. Like it was the best. And they would just spend like an entire day. Like they'd show. And so the ones that came to my mind were, were them, which is the ants, tarantulas, self-explanatory beginning of the end, I believe is the movie. Whenever you see the stock footage or, uh, or the montage of these movies when you see the giant grasshoppers. Mm -hmm. Apparently this is an infamously bad movie, but it's- Well, a lot of them are. (laughs) Right, but it's like, interesting take on giant grasshoppers. Uh, Hmm. The blob, the fly. I mean, these are all radioactive, either directly radioactive influenced or a metaphor for them. So once again, I mean, this is in some weird way comfort viewing. Right. And, I, you know, going off of that, I think that I don't know. I don't know this for sure, obviously, because I wasn't alive at this time. But I think this was a lot of viewers introduction to kaiju films like the Japanese monster films, because I don't know where U.S. audiences would have seen them first. So, I mean, I, I wonder if this is where people first saw like Godzilla and, you know, Godzilla versus Mecha Godzilla and all of these like monster films, too. Right. They remade the first one. With like right. Raymond Byrne friends, Raymond but if Burn. you weren't there at the moment, right, you'd have to catch these somewhere else. So yeah, I bet. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing I think that a lot of people don't realize now is that it used to be like you know if you were watching movies in the '30s, it, you had to be there for it, right? Or it was gone. There was no like television reruns. No, nothing came out on release. There's no streaming, right? It's like you went to the theater to see this movie, and after a while, it got phased out for a different movie. So like. You know, bringing these back, I think, was a huge deal for a lot of people to be able to actually watch them for the first time. But we are not going to spend time in the uh, 50s, 60s, or 70s, because the next film we're going to talk about is The Thing, 
which is 1982. This was the the thing that was directed by John Carpenter. There has been a remake since then, which apparently wasn't very good. Um, the screenplay was by Bill Lancaster, Bert's son. Had no idea that he was in, in the business either. Interesting to me. The creature effects were by Rob Bowden, who worked with Carpenter, Verhoeven, and Fincher. He was like their go-to creature effects person. And I definitely want to talk about the creature effects in this film because they're very, they're fascinating. Um, This is an adaptation of the 1938 novella Who Goes There by John W. Campbell, which was also loosely adapted by Howard Hawks in 1951, The Thing from Another World. So a lot of people like to say that this film is a remake of that, but even John Carpenter has said, like, no, we went with a more faithful adaptation of the original novella while we still, like, incorporated some elements from Hawks' film as well. So they are two very different interpretations of the same story. Um, but yeah, the the basic plot of this film is that an American research station in Antarctica is invaded by a mysterious alien creature who can imitate anyone it devours. So it's a very simple premise, but I think it's a very effective one because it kind of works as like a bottle set. Like they can't really go very far from this this base, even though like there are no walls there. Technically, they could walk away at any time, but because it's Antarctica and you can't really live out there for very long they are effectively trapped in like close quarters with each other. So it is very claustrophobic. There's a lot of paranoia involved in it. Um, But I'm very curious as to what you all think. Melissa, what did you think of this film? I thought it was very icky in a good, like in a good way. But I was like very surprised about like how gross the thing, things are. But yeah, I just simply would never go to Antarctica now. Like, because if something <laughs> happens, like, this movie really, like, highlights if something happens, that's it. You can't leave. You just deal yeah. with the thing that happened. And, like, no. <laughs> Not for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, because this movie takes place, like, winter has just started. And, like, this is a real thing. Like, if you are over, like, if you're staying over the winter in Antarctica, like, that's it. You're not going to get out for, like, you know, until winter's what, over, until they can start sending like long range planes in again. Are are you saying that this movie has the premise of winter is coming and so is this big evil thing who can look vaguely humanoid? Is this a better Game of Thrones than Game of Thrones? <laughs> the thing is the Song of Ice and Fire. Sorry, you said you the winter is coming thing. It's just, <laughs> Yeah, this uh, this film was critically derided at the time. A lot of people were like, didn't get what Carpenter was trying to do. They thought it was just like shock horror. But it is, of course, gained cult classic status. And a lot of people do think that this film is technically very well done as well. Some of the things that I noted, just like things that I thought looked really interesting, is like the contrast between the light and the darkness in this film. Like scenes that are shot during the day are so because of the snow especially and then like at night it's very like dark and gray and dim um and carpenter has said in interviews that that opening sequence with the dog running through the snow with the helicopter chasing it um which is such a strange like sequence until you like start to realize what's happening but he says that that's like one of the best sequences that he's ever done like he's very proud of that particular opening what did you think sam about this film John Carpenter is somebody I would say I don't know a lot about, but I actually am starting to realize I might. Hmm. 
And that's really how I feel about his movies. Like, first of all, I detest watching movies by myself. Because if I can't talk to somebody about them, did it ever happen? <laughs> I have seen Escape from New York. I am I am down with Snake. Snake Pliskin, who is also Kurt Russell. And it's a John Carpenter movie, obviously. This, between this and... The, the one that comes later with Rowdy Rowdy Piper, They Live, also a Carpenter movie. I am starting to see what John Carpenter does. And it is very easy to watch any of these three movies and say, not a lot happens here. There's not a lot of artistry. I can see why it would be critically derided. But I think that is because... If you only see the one or you see it in isolation and you don't see it as an auteur's work, so I think this is a good case for that, that there are things happening that are understated. Mm-hmm. Uh, those those tensions. And, There's a lot of subtlety in this film. Right. and I But I think you would miss it because you'd get, you'd get distracted by like the effects, which John Carpenter's effects are neat but they aren't big summer blockbuster effects. And so you could definitely be underwhelmed by those, but that's not what he's trying to do. I mean, I'm sure he'd be happy to have bigger, better effects. I don't think he's disappointed though, because I don't think he's trying to do that. He's trying to do something else. And so I just, again, the, the vibes of Carpenter are interesting. And so I, I think that the movie's fine, but between the vibes and Kurt Russell, we got some good stuff happening here. Can we talk about Kurt Russell's hair in this movie? His beard. Just like, yeah, so it's like glossy and like, yeah. <laughs> the man had bitchin' hair all the way through the 80s. Like, if you don't know this, you don't know. I, I, mean, I didn't you know, know. I had no idea. I didn't I mean, I've know. I've seen plenty of films. I've well, seen plenty of Kurt Russell films, but he does not have this hair later in his life. And it is just gorgeous. But yeah, we also get R.J. McReady and A. Wilford Brimley, T.K. Carter, David Clennon, Keith David, Richard Dysart, and a lot of lot of other names in supporting roles. This is a very, this is a movie that I often am suspicious of, where it's about a cast of only men in mm-hmm. a like frontier-like situation. Like Master and Commander is also kind of like this. And I'm always like very suspicious of these kinds of movies because I'm like, this is one of those movies that they say is universal, but it's actually a very specific point of view. But this one I thought was actually fairly well done just because all of these actors managed to balance the subtlety of like all of these characters have prior relationships to Mm -hmm. this film and they're able to show us those relationships, but then also show us how those relationships completely change when the paranoia of any one of them could be the thing sets in. And so like, they're doing like a couple of different jobs here um, in order to tell us who these people are and what they mean to each other. And I think that it's actually very well done, especially by Kurt Russell in this film was anybody like throughout the film trying to figure out like okay which one of them is the thing like like did anyone like try to like pick up on any clues or anything like that because this movie kind of invites you to try to figure it out I don't think I was as much trying to figure out who was the thing but more thinking about like if I was in this situation 
it would be code words and like we're tying like we're tying ourselves together with like rope so I'm not like none of you are going anywhere without my little beady eyes on you because I'm not trying to have anybody turn into this creature but also I think the film I think is kind of unclear because I also thought like nobody could be it because there's not enough time like it takes a long time for the thing to fully turn into something else which is fun and gross for us because we get to spend a lot of time with this like morphine creature like it's fucking horrifying it's so gross that it was almost more of like a fear of like I would I would just simply not allow anyone to leave me in this situation like none of us are they separate so much you guys are crazy (laughs) <laughs> why are you separating? Yeah, there's tons of people being sent off by themselves what? or like going off into a corner. Yeah, like, no. no. <laughs> Don't do that. This is why they need like one not man around <laughs> to be like, right, hello, yeah. good like, sirs. <laughs> we are not doing any more <laughs> solo missions. <laughs> we are all staying in this room together. Yeah, like I... Yeah. We're like a kindergarten class tied together with a leash. <laughs> Nobody is turning into yeah. the thing. I did like when they said the thing. The thing. <laughs> yeah, they just keep calling it the thing. Like, they don't name it ever. It's just the thing. I like that, but too. This, that this it's thing. Nev- there's never a... I mean, there's legitimately no conclusion. Yeah. It ends and you you're left know. in this, like, like, oh, no. Yeah. There's going like, to be a thing, I too. think that the lack of... <laughs> The ambiguous ending to this is very interesting because it's like, are either of them the thing or are they just two people who are about to freeze to death? Like, it's very hard to know, like, what, like, was this all worth it? Like, or is one of them going to like, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's very bleak because I don't think that we can assume that the thing is done with them, but also whatever they were there to do. Like, that's also off the table because so many things are destroyed and there's only two of them left. So what are they going to do? Right. And there's no power. So the idea is that once those that fire burns down, like, they're fucked. Like, they're going to freeze to death or starve to death. All they have is that whiskey. <laughs> well, at least, so, at least they have that. At least they have that. And their friendship. And their friendship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the there's a there's also a lot about like interior shots versus exterior shots in this because like there's a lot of the ways in which this research set this research station is kind of like quarantined into different places. Like they're constantly crossing that courtyard to get to like like McCready has his own shack and there's like a shed that they lock one of the the people in at one point. You know, like there's a lot of like moving around this place. And then, like, we discover later that, like, one of the things has, like, dug a tunnel, basically, like, from one spot to another spot. Like, it becomes very much a labyrinth, um, which I think reflects the way that all of these characters are becoming more and more paranoid um, about what's happening. Like, it's almost like this place was a scientific research station. Everything had its place. It's where they were all living. And then it slowly is, like, destroyed, basically, in, like, into a place that's just uninhabitable. There's a lot of things that have been influenced by this work, obviously. Um, There's been novelizations. There have been board games. There have been comic book sequels. um, There's a prequel film of the same name. 
um, that came out in 2011. Oh, yeah. We Mary were Elizabeth Winston. Yeah. yeah you we were talking about uh, the X-Files episode Ice, which is from the first season of the X-Files, which is clearly, hmm. clearly inspired by this because uh, Scully and uh, Mulder go to a like research station where people are like going insane and killing each other. And so like there's there's like that also that it's just like a really fun little like episode remake of the thing. But like with these two characters, it also has my favorite exchange of any X-File episode where Scully where where Mulder tries to give Scully his explanation for what's going on. And he just says ammonia based life forms. And her immediately response is no <laughs> it's just like the most like she's just so over his shit no. in that moment she's like no no we're not doing that so I thought that that was very very good I will also say though I hate movies when animals suffer and die and as soon as I saw that dog I was like I know well, I can't because I really didn't want the dog to get shot but it was worse. Right. What really happens is worse because he has to turn into a weird, slimy creature dog. And then he kills like the other dogs. It's and like, icky. yeah, I didn't I did not like that. So that is a trigger warning for anybody who doesn't like animal violence in their horror films. There is, I would say, two scenes probably that are ugh, that are pretty bad. I, I did not like that. Did you guys watch Stranger Things? I can't remember. Yes. Yeah. I've only seen two seasons of that, and it was a long time ago. But do you think that the Stranger Things creature design is influenced by the thing? I hadn't thought about that, Sam but Sony. now that you bring it up, because yeah. I thought it looked familiar. <laughs> I was like, where have I seen like that kind of mouth, like the flapping yeah. mouth? With, like, like a little teeth? flower. Yeah, I was like, like where have I seen flower? that before? Ooh. Yeah. Like gore flower. Thank you. I now know how to describe that. <laughs> I appreciate You're so it. Welcome. <laughs> That's such a good description. <laughs> oh, and it has like the little tentacles. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think the scariest one is honestly the first one that they they bring back though, where it's like the face and then the other face is like pulling out of it. Like, yeah, because at that point you're like, what uh, the f happened here? Right. How yeah. did it do this? Felt a little. <laughs> Not that I've seen anything to justify this, but it, but there are moments where it, it feels like we're almost tipping into Cronenberg territory. Yes, absolutely felt that. Especially that the I've scene. Justify that with anything, but. No, especially the scene where uh, the one guy's head falls off and then yeah. it sprouts the little yeah. ant legs and starts Ooh. to scurry away. That felt very Cronenberg to me. Um, have you guys seen Santa Create a Diet? <laughs> yes. Because that reminds me of the last when, season, when their but... little balls grow legs. Yeah, <laughs> it's like not a one to one comparison at all. I wouldn't even necessarily say that that little ball is inspired by this, but I definitely thought about it. That that makes me think of the before times when on flights I would download stuff from Netflix and watch it on the plane. Yeah, and that's how I saw most of Santa Clarita, Clarita right. diet. Yeah. Your seatmates were probably like, this is great. <laughs> I know. Stoner Timothy Oliver is you so all... cute. <laughs> <laughs> what did you all think of the scene where Kurt Russell's character McCready ties down all of the people and like tests their blood with the with the the fire, including like people who are already dead? I think the method leaves something to be desired if you're in the room, but I do think this was necessary. 
Like, we need a baseline. Who's the thing? <laughs> well, I feel this is very similar to, to Snake Plissken, but also Roddy Piper's character in... Um, I keep wanting to... It's They Live. I, I It follows and they live for some reason. Live in my head is the same movie. I know they're not. But anyway, these are basically take-no-shit protagonists. Right. Like, this... I, I think what Carpenter does really well is creating these protagonists who are like, I care about other people. I am not a sociopath. But if it's the difference between you and me, you better get out of the way fast. Right. Yeah. Right. And and like there's a certain very there's an honesty about that. Right. You know who you're dealing with. And, and I think that's somebody good to ally with. Yeah. Like if you are a competent, well-meaning person. And know how to stay out of the way when the shit goes down. If that's not your level, if that is not your area of expertise, I appreciate that. I appreciate a good leader. I would have been like, sure, test my blood. I'm fine. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally fine. And then fine. we can go back to being best friends again. It's cool. This this does bring up the idea, like, do the imitations know that they're the thing? Like, that was something that I thought about. Like, Like, did they copy them so closely that, like, these people think that they're real people? Like, I just... I don't know. Like, are you? Are are you saying? Questions I have. Are you asking if they're symbiotes? Please don't. (laughs) (laughs) I, I just, I have to say, like, that's the other thing I really liked about this is that we didn't need like an explication of who these, who, what this thing is, and why it's there, and you know, like, we don't get any like backstory, and I'm fine with that. Like, I am totally fine with not having like all the motivations explained for what's going on like this is a very straightforward this is an this is a creature that we cannot possibly understand that is doing things that are horrific I don't need to like have an explanation for that I thought that was very well done really quickly I just wanted to say Tessa this movie has a lot of familiar faces Mm -hmm. of course if you grew up during the time I grew up in you know who Wilford Brimley is (laughs) You may know him as the person who wanted to raise your knowledge level about the diabetes. You might know him from oatmeal. Or you might... <laughs> the food. Or you might know him from any number of television and movies that he made. Many of us recognize a young Keith David. But I want to draw our attention to two others that I recognized. One I recognized and one I didn't. T.K. Carter, who plays Nalls. I knew that face. Would I have ever in a million years said he's Milo from Good Morning Miss Bliss, but which was later retitled as Saved by the Bell, the early years? <laughs> Would I have known that he was Haley Mills's one of Haley Mills's adult teacher friends? No, not in a million years. But that's him. And that's why I recognized him. Richard Mazur, who plays Clark, Tessa. He's the mediator on The Good Fight and The Good Wife. Oh. Remember him? Yeah. Yeah. I had no idea that's who that was. Well, it is. The final thing I wanted to say just about the special effects, um, this reminded me of Evil Dead. And obviously Evil Dead came out like a lot later and that's a completely different like kind of horror. But the way that like, I don't know, just like the style of the special effects that felt like the Raimis were really trying to like imitate some of those just like weird like practical effect choices from this film, which I thought was very interesting. I'm glad you made the Stranger Things connection, though, because I definitely thought this looks so familiar. 
I like when the like chompers come out of the guy and get the other guy. Oh yeah, the like hole. <laughs> yeah, it, which it's is very like... much like a uh, a. Uh, it's very much like the vagina with teeth, right? Like yeah. the, the 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 gaping hole. And you oh, just, like... we should all put teeth on our spooky season watch list. No, no teeth. No. <laughs> I think it's really funny. I, I was just thinking about what you were saying about about the Raimis. This movie comes out between the two Evil Dead movies. Oh, really? Yeah. So I'm like, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, like, no. I mean, to think about it and 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 to know the Raimis and the Campbell dude. Uh, the Campbell dude? The Campbell dude. <laughs> you know, they went out there and they made all of these choices. And in some ways, they didn't know what the hell they were doing. But when they came back and made the Evil Dead 2 movie... They probably did know a lot more, and it's right. hard to say that they weren't influenced by this. I think that's really fascinating. That's one of the things about making the same movie twice. I don't have much good to say about it, but that was neat. The last thing that I want to say is, is anybody who's listening to this who thinks, man, we should watch more John Carpenter movies, get hyped, because... We, Tessa and I, as part of our end-of-the-year movie marathon, are going to be watching Big Trouble in Little China, which not only has John Carpenter, it also brings back the man with the awesomest hair. Kurt Russell. That is correct. All right. So one of the other subgenres, I guess, of this type of film is, of course, kaiju films, which are films that involve giant monsters. Kaiju films originated with Godzilla, of course, in Japan, but quickly became its own genre in and of itself. I mean, we've had so many even like modern interpretations of Godzilla or just kaiju films like Pacific Rim, etc. South Korea has produced three kaiju films locally. Um, Yongari, Monster from the Deep in 1967, 2001 Yongari in 1999, and The Host, which is the film we're going to talk about in 2006. I think this is fascinating to me because South Korea, I didn't know this before I did the research for this. Apparently, they were late to the kaiju genre because after World War II, Japanese media was banned in Korea for like a very long time. Hmm. So it, it is interesting that like they they didn't like they weren't even introduced to the genre. They weren't aware of the genre until much later. But I wanted to ask before we got into this. Well, Sam actually wanted to ask. I, I did not know that this was a controversial thing, like oh. a controversial take that the host is a kaiju film. I know that that's not a universally held opinion, but far be it from me to ever dispute anything you think, Tessa. However, I, I watching this movie, it made me think, is there a difference between a kaiju movie and a movie that has a kaiju in it? That That's what I'm asking. Like, basically, Godzilla is... About Godzilla. Right. But Sheen Godzilla, which I think the host is most like in some ways, isn't about Godzilla. It's about the true evil bureaucracy. Right. And uh, rescue responses. Right. So, you know, Godzilla is a kaiju movie. But is Sheen Godzilla a movie that has a kaiju in it? This is a great question. Or is there no difference? In which case, the host is definitely a kaiju movie. I mean, I think I, this is a great I don't know. Question. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm just, I'm just asking questions. I just ask it. Please don't. <laughs> but yeah, maybe we should talk about the host first, and then we can might have to have a better answer to that question. Melissa, this is the one that you chose for this episode. Do you want to give us a quick rundown? 
Yeah, so The Host is a 2006 South Korean movie directed by Bong Joon-ho, um, who directed Parasite, as we all remember, won the Oscar. And it was written by Bong Joon-ho along with Ha Won-jun and Bak Chul-hyun. It is starring a ton of people that are in other films I've seen, films on my watch list, films I'm excited for coming out this year. And all that's just to say, I love when I pick a movie. It wasn't on a whim. You guys gave me instructions. I pick a movie and then I get to connect it to like all these other movies that I've seen or I'm excited to see. Like this is my favorite thing about watching films. So Park, uh, the character, the father, Park uh, Gangdu, he's played by Song Kang Ho, who was in Parasite, is going to be in Broker this year, uh, directed by the same person who directed Shoplifters a few years ago. The grandfather in this movie is played by Byung Hee Bong, who's in Okja. The brother, Park Hae Il, is in Decision to Leave this year, which that's directed by Park Chan Wook, which directed The Handmaid and An Old Boy, which are films that are kind of monkeys of mine because I know that they're extremely well regarded and I just haven't seen them. Beiduna's in this movie, is obviously a fave. A Wachowski fave. Love um, her. We, yeah. we are members of her fan club. We I was are. counting up. I think it's like four movies we've seen with her this year. Just this and year. Yeah. And, and that's that's four good movies. And that's not counting Sense8. Yeah. No. Which includes two movies. Did, <laughs> did yeah. I just say Jupiter Ascending was a good movie because yes. Beiduna was in it? Yes. I mean, I think it's good for other reasons, but yes. And also <laughs> that one. Yeah, but she's going to be a broker later this year. Um, and then the my favorite character uh the snatch sister or the snatch daughter is what i'm calling her because her snatching in this film is just cinema to me (laughs) (laughs) played by go asung she's in snowpiercer that's another bong joon ho movie i haven't seen it basically this is a stacked cast i'm obsessed with it (laughs) Uh, the cast is so good in this like and they are all doing excellent work like there is not a character in this that doesn't have like some sort of layers to their character. I, I love your description of like the snatched daughter. We just watched the first episode of Star Trek Lower Deck. So when you said that, all I could think of was he just wants to gum on her for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Which just <laughs> Oh man. I love that uh that uh uh Gang Gang Do, the the main character, the father basically tries to demonstrate what he thinks happens to her in uh to the i guess it's the police officer he's like this is her puts the phone in his mouth and then like like, spits it into the cup and i think that's a big part of uh bong joon home films is that he's able to talk about some really dark subjects and have some really like messed up things happen in his film but he has such a, like, sense of humor about it, too. Like, you know, this is how people would actually, like, react in these situations. It's not just, like, they're, none of these people are competent. None of them, like, understand what's going on. Because how could you understand what was going on? And, like, I just think that that's A-plus work on his part. One of the things I love about this film is that within the bureaucracy, within the response teams, within the family that's dealing with this, it is just hypocrites everywhere. Yes. Like, and it's not that I, it's, I'm, I'm not necessarily making like a moral judgment on the family, on the like governmental response. Yes. Um, but within the family, I, I love how they're giving the father of, 
um, Hansio so much shit. Like he's always sleeping. He's bad at running their little bodega. Like he's just basically, for lack of a better term, like they think he's a piece of shit. But when their father is giving them all this lecture about how they need to be nice to him because he's just sleepy sometimes, they fall asleep. Yeah. (laughs) I want, as somebody who has a sleeping disorder and takes, has to take medicine to stay awake, I appreciated this. I I really feel like I don't want to be sleepy, okay? (laughs) Just cut me some slack, man. Come on. I felt that felt it in my bones yeah I just this is such a dysfunctional family but in a way that like I don't know like I I felt like you're right they're all hypocrites and they all are not bad people but they're all like they're just like people regular regular people right and so like the idea that the brother we especially talked about the brother uh Park uh Nam Il I think is how you say the character's name And, like, how he's, like, presented at the beginning of this film as, like, the drunk, right? Like, he's the alcoholic. Like, he he has a college education, but he can't find a job, which is, like, a really big... That's a big thing with Bong Joon-ho is, like, the idea of, like, Korean economy and the, the way that a lot of young people don't have opportunities that they should have. But, like, he's an alcoholic. But then, like, halfway through the film, there's this action sequence where he's escaping from these, like the contamination team or whatever. And Sam and I were both like, that's out of a James Bond film. Like he should be working for like the Korean, like secret service or something. Like he, like, cause where he puts the paperclip on the, on the, uh, the plug, the outlet to make all the lights go out. Like I was like, this guy, this guy has some skills. Like it's really easy to like underestimate him at first, but he knows some stuff. There's one moment where someone was going after the monster and I was like, oh, you're so dumb. Like, don't go that way. You need to run away. Like, you can't take that thing. But then the father just gets like a more effective tool and also goes after it. So I'm like, oh, I still think you're dumb. But like, you can't just let somebody be by themselves fighting the monster. Like, you got to get a better fighting stick. <laughs> like, Kurt Russell would have been like idiot and gone the other way. Yeah. Yeah. When everyone starts running, there's like a group of people that run into like a trailer and they shut the door on the little girl. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, you're so mean. How dare you leave that little girl to die? And then they all get eaten, except not that little girl. I was like, this movie rules. <laughs> this this movie's that's great. That is what I that's <laughs> yeah. what I thought. I was like, serves them right. Yes, like, that is exactly what face. my notes say. Serves them right. And then in my notes, in parentheses, it says, LOL, that's bad. <laughs> Melissa. <laughs> <laughs> is it? Is it? Is it? Yeah, I I think that okay. So the first shot of the of the creature of the host, as the as the character is called, as the creature is called, is great when they're like when they see it like in the water and they're all throwing stuff at it, like because they don't know what it is. And, they and they're all like looking at the water, being litterers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they're they're all just like looking at this place. But then there's this shot like where you see it from the side and you see the creature like just running at them from the side. Like it is like, and you slowly realize like what's happening. I just, that, that whole scene where they're all being chased is just at the beginning. is excellent. I wish we could have had another camera angle of that scene. Yeah. And, and from that camera angle, I want to see like the two or three smart people who are like cartoon running 
the other way. Yeah. Because they're not idiots. Yeah. I, I, I thought that that was some really great camera work. I also really appreciate the way in which all of these characters, they all at some point in their quest to kill this, this being fuck up in like some pretty like funny, but dark ways. Yeah. Like, uh, Gong Du for like, doesn't count the bullets. Right. And so that ends up like killing his father. Uh, Namil has the uh, the Molotov cocktails, but he accidentally drops one of the last one behind him, so he doesn't have one to throw at the at, at the host. And I then, remember uh, Namju like can't let she has that p- persistent problem of not letting her her arrow go, like hesitating too mm-hmm. much. When yeah. she pops out of like the bridge infrastructure for a second, I was like, oh hell yeah, like she's gonna be the hero. It's over. Nothing bad's ever going to happen. And then she just gets, like, dumped off the side so quickly. <laughs> <laughs> like, Melissa, yeah. you didn't learn. I am glad that she got to shoot her flaming arrow. It ruled so hard. But I'm, like, I'm glad that this film had a couple more tricks up its sleeve, even at that point. Is this movie incompetence porn? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The other scene that I love is when they think that uh, the daughter is dead and they're at the like memorial and this is where you meet like the sister and the brother and they're all together and they're all crying and they all fall on the floor because they're all crying, but they're all like pushing at each other and like because they are so dysfunctional and they just end up like just completely like falling on the floor together. Like there's, this is just, it's artwork. Like, you know, everything that you need to know about this family fairly quickly but none of the characterizations break like there's the same character throughout the film yeah and the thing I love about um I'm gonna say like this type of film and I don't necessarily mean like a creature film but I do kind of because I'm thinking about like um oh like Cloverfield just like the way that these like creature films or like environmental disaster films like they corral characters together and it's fun because these are characters that kind of function like they're strangers, but there's this other level of, it's not that they're strangers. They're just a family that don't get along. Yeah. (laughs) They do not understand each other. They don't. Yeah. No, I think that that's really great. What did you think about the host as a creature and the ways that it's metaphorically used in this film? I, he's so good at backflips. I can't believe it. I what I really like is that they there's not a slow build up to this creature like you get to see him in broad daylight almost immediately and so it's like the none none of what this film is trying to do is be like ramp up the tension until you see the creature and the creature reveal is going to scare you it's none of that it's all about like look at how horrible and incompetent a governmental response to something like this is the addition of the ultimately non-existent virus is kind of wild to watch this movie after that time we all are going through a global pandemic (laughs) yes there was a couple of too soon moments in this like when he's like he says something about like oh the government said it's a virus so like we just have to believe it which in the film you're supposed to be like ew no you don't but when it happened to us, we were like, please listen and wear a mask. <laughs> like That scene, and I don't think it was as horrifying the first time I watched this because it was like many years ago the first mm-hmm. time I watched this, but where the guys, they're like all standing on the edge of the street and the guy starts coughing and he like takes off his mask 
to like spit into the puddle and then the puddle gets splashed up on them. I was like, no, <laughs> no. Like, <laughs> oh. we were, we were watching, um, the, so I've mentioned the good fight twice now. We were watching the season five premiere, which is the one that, you know, kind of, it, it, co- it covers like two years worth of ground at once. And there's a scene where one of the characters is in an ambulance because he's got COVID and the other character's talking right over them and they're talking about what's happening. And I'm like, should be wearing a mask. But the, you but the should, whole but, point is, is that they didn't know that that but was the, but, but, at what's that What's so funny is like, but, but they knew some, we knew something was happening. Right. Right. That was like, virus weird came from blah 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 and it was very laissez-faire about talking with each other and then you compare it with that scene you know from the with the bus splashing and it's like those are two very different reactions to something very similar mm-hmm. and it's like ah the two genders <laughs> <laughs> the two genders of what did you think about the fact that the virus wasn't real that it was like a way of covering up the fact that this creature had been created by toxic waste being dumped into the Han River. And so so the reaction that they were having was like a chemical contact reaction, not a viral reaction. I kept thinking about (laughs) this, what I am considering an ever after quote, but it's also a quote from the book Utopia, which I am sure someone on your end has feelings about um but uh drew barrymore's character says to the prince and ever after like what must i conclude then but that you first make thieves and then punish them um and that is what i was thinking a lot about the government response to this movie it's like you're creating this virus so that you can use like the the quarantine process to like further oppress these people when you did this to them in the first place and now you're punishing them for their responses that type of thing and I really thought about it a lot with like the agent yellow thing because I'm like this is an invented threat <laughs> yeah you made this yeah up. absolutely yeah. I just want to say I my 5g has not come online yet but it's weird that nobody picked up the host and I mean I know why it is but it's weird that nobody picked up on the host, you know, and they wanted to see, see, the government can do things like this. See, it happened in the host. It's happening now. And I'm like, I'm still waiting for my 5G, folks. <laughs> it ain't it ain't real. But, I, <laughs> but it wasn't this movie. I had thought about this the first time I watched it. But I do think and I, I read a like a little bit about this. The fact that he's also really trying to engage with like Korean protest culture, mm-hmm. especially in the like the last half of this film. And I don't feel like probably any of us have like enough cultural context mm-hmm. to be able to like pick up probably all the references that he's trying to make. But there is that really interesting scene at the end where like basically they I don't know, tear gas, Agent Yellow, like a mm-hmm. bunch of people that are protesting. I don't know. What what did you think about that? I feel like we have a lot more like protest knowledge now <laughs> firsthand. Yeah. I don't know if I had many feelings about like their acts of protest outside of like <clears throat> my own deeply like American context for protest. But w- they talk about the Agent Yellow and they're like, it'll... I don't know what the words, but they basically say like it'll kill anything biological within like, so they're protesting. I don't know. It's like, it's, it's confused. 
that not, it's not maybe not the plot isn't confusing to me but like parsing out what all this stuff means in a context outside of the film kind of is because I really I I think that because they say the aging yellow will kill everything for so long it's like you expect them kind of not to spray these protesters but then they do so then I'm like okay so were they lying about what aging yellow can even do in the first place to try to prevent people from protesting like at all or do they really not care at all about just like killing these people I don't know if we see anybody actually die from it and the creature doesn't ultimately die from it either but we also don't know decades after this movie like how these people's health are faring which is right. I how mean, this whole movie started in the first least, place. <laughs> yeah. There is at least like some indication, like everybody's ears are bleeding. Oh, right? yeah. Like there yeah. is some indication that it is like affecting them in some way. Um, but you, you also noted on here that it's inspired by a true story. So <laughs> after I finished this movie, I Googled it as one does. And all these things as were like, does. <laughs> yes, all these things were like, oh, the formaldehyde in the beginning is a visual metaphor for America's culture, like infiltrating and corrupting South Korean culture or maybe Korean culture at large. I'm not sure. But you hear that and you think oh (laughs) the poison is america and it's like that tracks like whatever else happened in this movie like of (laughs) course that's true um but yeah it's inspired by a true story of a korean mortician working for the u.s military being ordered to dump formaldehyde down the drain and this story coming out like really increased anti-american sentiment Um, And then combined with an article from that area about like a deformed fish with an S-shaped spine being caught on the Han River. So there's like multiple like real world inspirations for this. Now, have you seen Shin Godzilla? I haven't. I haven't seen any Godzilla. This might be the only kaiju movie I've ever seen if we determine that this counts. So I'm curious because I you should I mean, I think you should watch Godzilla because I like I like the original Godzilla uh, film, and I also like Shin Godzilla quite a bit. But Shin Godzilla, it is kind of similar in the sense that it is also about like how incompetent like the government is at mm-hmm. responding to stuff like this, and how they like manipulate people in these situations. Mm-hmm. But it's also kind of about like the U.S. and how like the U.S. will sort of worm its way into involvement in these types of things. The obvious difference between the two is that Godzilla is, is very clearly connected with like atomic power, like nuclear waste. Um, and this is more connected with like chemical pollution. But I, I do find the parallels to be very interesting between the two. Well, you know, Agent Yellow is it's it's hard not to see this as a connection to Agent Orange, mm-hmm. which was it, a defoliant that we used in um, not just Vietnam, but Laos. In Cambodia, I believe too, and you know it was a it was a gas that, you know, while it probably wouldn't kill you, right? Like the Agent Yellow, right? But like Melissa, it's what you said that made me think of that. Is that while it may have made you know millions of people sick at the time of being exposed to it, but um, it's been estimated that over a million people had were disabled or had chronic health conditions mm-hmm. coming from it, and birth defects abounded mm-hmm. as a result. I mean, so it's like, it, it it's hard. I, Agent Yellow, Agent Orange, it's really hard not to see 
And to think, you know, at that moment where it's like, oh, this won't kill you. Oh, I bet it's going to do something else, though. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I also, I, I wanted to ask, because you, you actually had a couple things in the notes, Melissa, that I wanted to ask you about. You made a, you made a note about the subtitles. Oh, my God. So I watched this film on Paramount Plus with Showtime, because uh, the host is streaming on Showtime right now, in the U.S. We did at too. least. Cool. So I have my subtitles on all my streaming services basically by default because I watch most things with subtitles. So even though this this is a subtitled film, so I I ended up having to like turn off the subtitle setting so that I wouldn't have double subtitles happening because the subtitles that were being provided by Paramount under the little subtitle section were like. I don't know how subtitles work, so I can probably be corrected on this, but like automatically generated phonetically. So they were doing that for the Korean language, but they were just putting like random English words that a computer somewhere thought that the Korean word sounded like. Like it was incomprehensible. (laughs) Like. So it's like nonsense sentences. Yes. Like I cannot believe that that is available for someone to put on their TV. <laughs> that's, that's super interesting knowing that. I wish I would have taken know, some sub- photos. I wish you would have too. You know, the one thing that I think is really interesting now that there's so much Korean content, like people love it now. Mm-hmm. Thanks Bong Joon-ho actually played a big role in that. Yeah. Uh, that, that basically, it's really interesting finding out that, that subtitles, not the weird, wacky, possibly AI ones you're mentioning, but the other set, it's it's pretty much a you-get-what-you-pay-for situation. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's really interesting. Uh, people who've worked for Netflix have said, ah, well, we did the best we could. And also, I'm, I'm, I really hope, we've talked about this, Tessa and I, very often about next year being the year of all the things Korean. We're just going to watch them all. Nice. Um, Especially Park Chan-wook, yeah. who I haven't seen. Yeah. I think the only one I've seen of his is the American one he did, uh, Stoker. Stoker, yeah. yeah. I also have a That's dream of list. learning Korean that I'm going to do one day when I'm not doing 20 other things. Hmm. People always say, if you know Japanese, you can learn Korean. And I'm like, I'll be the judge of that. <laughs> I doubt it, but I'll, I'll tell try. You. That's right. So, yeah, it's funny. I'm doing voice training and learning Korean. I'll be doing those two things at, at the, the same, same time. time. Maybe they'll help each other. It is It is my mission to become part of Blackpink, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So you have seen Parasite. Have you seen Snowpiercer? I haven't. Parasite and The Host okay. are the only two Bong Joon-ho films I've seen thus far. How would you put those two films together in terms of thematically what Bong Joon-ho is interested in? Well, he's very clearly interested in like how like society's structures affect like the everydayest of people. Because if this family wasn't where they were, which was serving food out of a little shop on the seaside to presumably support themselves, Um, they wouldn't have been anywhere near this. So like the parasite characters who live in their big fancy house, they wouldn't have gotten snatched up by the host. (laughs) Right. Yeah. They're a lot more protected because of where they are. 
Yeah, and I stole this from you... our friend Ryan uh, Silverstein. Oh, thank you. I, I needed you to review. say this. Yes, he basically said in his letterbox review that this this film mirrors Parasite and not just with the title, which I thought was so cool because then in my mind I was like, oh, Parasite, the host. Ah. Oh man. Oh, I didn't even think about yeah, it. Yeah, that's hey. great. <laughs> hey, that that Ryan is a smart dude, he and he is. will only know I said that if he listens. <laughs> So. <laughs> I won't tell him. Yeah, I I see a lot of anti-capitalism in both films mm-hmm. too. I mean, I think Parasite is more overt yeah. with its anti-capitalism, but I think now that I've seen Parasite and I've seen Snowpiercer, which is also very anti-capitalist, I think I can see it more in the host as well. Yeah, because I, I was looking for it going into the host because of how much I like Parasite. Uh, and because I had read Ryan's review before I saw the film. But yeah, and I looking back on the film after hearing that a lot of it was focused on like American creep into Korean culture because American basically like America equals capitalism. <laughs> it's like if you are critiquing America, you are critiquing capitalism. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And like, I also think so I, I do also and this is the last thing I'll say before we before we move into the closing, but not, mine. not not you. I I'll mean, yeah, you all can say whatever you want, but like <laughs> I will say too that I was thinking about this during the film because a lot of the Americans that, I mean, there's not a lot of Americans actually in the film. You actually just see them via like news stories in the back of the in like you know what's happening, what are the Americans doing, mm-hmm. you know how they're inserting themselves into this situation. It almost seems like a real critique of like American military involvement mm-hmm. in South Korea, mm-hmm. which is considerable. I mean, from someone who grew up in a military family, there's often this American idea that the South Koreans really like having us there, that, you know, they, you know, they, we, we helped them fight a war against North Korea. And so like there, you know, were two countries that have like a special relationship. This film shows us a very different view mm-hmm. of that relationship, which is, you know, no, like these are people who have managed to figure out how to stick around in our country after the war and who perhaps are making either making situations actively worse or are using it for their own gain. Yeah. And like creating situations to then turn around and also use them for their own gain. Absolutely. Yeah. So this is, I feel like you're right. This is also an effective critique of like, why are these people still here? Why mm-hmm. are they still helping us? You know, helping in quotes. And like, I don't know that much about the military. So at this point, I'm kind of just talking out of my ass. But I did think like, if you are another country's military installment, like at the American facility where we see that man tell him to dump all the formaldehyde down the drain, I just feel like somebody in the home country should like get to sign off on things. You don't even go here. <laughs> and like, I think that I think the weirdest part of that scene is that he has him throw it out because the bottles are dusty. It's so like, the dust thing I thought was going to come back because they're so specific about talking and fingering the dust. I mean, but I think that's the point. Is I, that, I like, get this that guy though. Like is, if you have like like you're not supposed to hold on to product forever. It like right. it could be bad for you. Right, but it just comes across as so petty the way that he's just like these bottles haven't been dusted as punishment I'm making you dr- like put them all down the drains. If you can't take care of your formaldehyde, you don't get to keep it. <laughs> 
if if for, if formaldehyde is a preserving agent, would it go bad if it was? But that, that's the like, thing. He doesn't say it's like such the shelf life. Reverse logic. Is, I know. It's like so, he doesn't say like the dates are out of date. He just says these are too dusty. I don't want them in the lab. Like it's so weird and so petty. There's so many of them that I honestly took a moment to think about like the inefficiency of this lab having all those small bottles instead of just like one big jug. <laughs> like the storage implications of this. <laughs> but Bong Joon Ho loves that. He loves that kind of thing. It's it's very clear. By the way, I imagine Snowpiercer is on your list, Melissa. Oh yeah, yeah. And 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 of course, and and I you know personally think you should move it up because not only is it Bong Joon Ho, but we didn't get a creature from the Black Lagoon remake with him. But you know who's <laughs> in Snowpiercer? Captain You doing a great job too. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Octavia Spencer's awesome I, in that. Uh, there's she is a awesome, lot of excellent. good folks in that. I I just Chris Evans. I hope he comes back and plays Cap, like old man Cap. But mostly because I love what he's doing in other roles now. Like he is like somebody that I think is doing really. He's able to walk that line between doing the superhero work and doing interesting acting work, and they all aren't pulling that off very well. No, that's absolutely. But he true. does. I do kind of wonder though if he was like, I want to play asshole roles now. Like, give me, give I mean, me the asshole roles, so I'm not stuck as like this Captain America image forever. Oh my god! Oh, I yeah. know. And then they fumble Great, the bag in the Gray Man. It's very sad. I know. <sighs> Any last thoughts about the host? <laughs> Better than the Gray Man. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Better than the Gray Man. Um. I don't think so, because my last thing I have written in the notes that I haven't talked about in this section I talked about before, which is that the only time we get creature POV in this movie is when they're just dumping gasoline down its throat. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's we do get that, though. It's very brief. I guess I didn't mention it in uh, the thing, but we do get creature vision in the thing as well. We get a lot of shots of uh the thing yeah. like coming up on someone. And when I was yeah. watching the thing, I had the thought like, oh, this is like a different kind of uh, creature feature than I've seen. Because I haven't seen that many. Alien, Predator, Prey, these films we watched here is probably the full list. And I think the thing is the most different out of all of those. Um, and so when I saw the creature, you know, creature vision, I was like, oh, but they do... They do, they do do the thing. They, they do the thing. They do the trope. Yeah, you have to, you gotta have it. Before we close, though, we do have to rank them. From least terrifying to most terrifying, how would you rank these creatures, Melissa? I think that the creature from the Black Lagoon is the least terrifying. Like, he's just a misunderstood fish man. And I did like Shape of Water, so I might just have a soft spot for misunderstood fish men. But I did say while we were watching it that Guillermo del Toro definitely watched that film and said, yes, but what if he fucked? Yes. <laughs> what if he did? I respect the question. Um, so, yeah, he's the least terrifying, maybe because I was just thinking about like, what if, what if Kay likes him back? <laughs> like, he's a nice boy. Well, and I think it's because, like, we don't know what he wants. And I'm inclined to think just to live his life. Like, he was minding his own business. Which, maybe the thing was minding their own business. But you can't appropriate people's bodies <laughs> without their permission. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, so I think, yeah, I think that the thing (laughs) is the most terrifying, which puts the creature from the host in the middle. Um, not because it's not equally terrifying, but it can't trick you. Ah, yes. It is what it is. Like, it's just, yeah. And he's there, right? Flapping around Olympic level gymnastics. He doesn't care if you see him or not. If you're scared, that's your business. (laughs) The other thing about the host that I think is interesting is we never get an explanation for why he's like, do we ever get an explanation for why he's taking those bodies and putting them in the sewer? Like, is he like waiting for them to decompose a little bit? I don't like, because he throws up bones. Yeah. When I he don't... threw up that like original can that they threw in, I was like, ah, movies. <laughs> I love them. <laughs> <laughs> so, first of all, the creature is definitely the least scary oh, yeah. because I have a reasonable belief that I could be friends with him. Right. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's like a feral cat. You need to have the right amount of fear. But with some work, there could be a relationship forged. Gotcha. Okay. Especially if you don't so, shoot at him every five right. seconds. I'm going to put the host at number two. Here's why. As I mentioned earlier, there are those people who ran away the second they saw that thing, like off the bridge, kind of go into the water. Mm-hmm. I'm that person. <laughs> so like, nope. And I am like in a cab <laughs> on the other side of town. So it has it's no threat to me. Gotcha. None. So that means the thing is number one because, and here's the thing. There's two reasons for that about the thing. Here's the thing about the thing. The first thing about the thing is one, it, the interiority. Of that, right. right? Being in that enclosed space, as Melissa says, I may never go to Antarctica for this very reason, right? <laughs> On the one hand, penguins. On the other hand, this. <laughs> now, but the second thing is, as Wilford Brimley, his character, just Wilford Brimley, correctly, he does that calculation to figure out, like, if this thing goes unchecked, how long it's going to be before we're all done. Oof. Right? The thing is the only thing that can end humanity. That's true. I can literally be somewhere else other than the host. And the creature, to be honest. Yeah. Well, again, we're going to be pals. He only lives in one place. We're going to be... The the creature, by the way, here's the thing. The creature, I think, knowing what I know about that movie, could be on Queer Eye. He could be like one of the guys. (laughs) Ah. Right? And so, like, I, I, I think it would be great. Like that, that, that creature could give me fashion tips and I really appreciate that. So I I agree with both your rankings. Uh, The thing is definitely the most terrifying and yeah, the creature, the creature seems misunderstood, which that's a real genre of the creature feature, right? Like Godzilla, especially not the original one, but in later ones, Godzilla becomes a much more like empathetic character where you're kind of like, don't mistreat him. Like he, you know, he doesn't deserve this, (laughs) but like, there, there are there, there are a couple different flavors, right? Where the creature is a little bit more empathetic, and then there are some flavors where it's like the thing, where it's like, no, like this thing is out to kill us all, and there's no empathy for it. So, I get it. All right, so we talked about Universal a lot this week. So next week we're going to be joined by Elise to talk about Hammer Horror. We are going to discuss the 1957 The Curse of Frankenstein, 1958 Dracula, and the 1959 Mummy. This is officially Hammer Horror themed, but the unofficial theme is Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee because they are in all three of these movies. And we are getting pumped for our 11 Days of Star Wars event by reveling in the early work 
of Grand Moff Tarkin and Count Dooku. <laughs> yeah, I forgot they were both in Star Wars. Yes. So, yeah, like... yeah, well, that's the such the, the great thing about episode four, about that first film from 77, is that people knew Cushing and, Gen- and Guinness. And it's so, like, whenever you go back and see an early Alec Guinness film or just a contemporaneous Alec Guinness film, seeing him as, like, a not old dude is a trip. I am looking forward to it with Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee as well. Yeah, if you want to see a really good Alec Guinness film where he's very young, Great Expectations. His The version of Great Expectations that he's in is a very good film, and he's yeah. very good in it. He had a very long and illustrious career, and he did Star Wars. And he did Star Wars, and he didn't care about Star Wars at he all. Didn't, which he is didn't. Funny, know. But... He didn't know. I think he would be. I think he was very. I know that from his biography, he was very unhappy about being associated with Star Wars above and beyond anything else he ever did. I think he would be furious if he was if he was aware a now of, to see what had happened. Yeah. And then maybe he'd be besties with Ewan McGregor, and we'd get a show about them riding motorcycles. Oh, I don't that would be know. Where can people find you, Melissa, online and in their headphones? Yeah, you can hear me talking about movies with my co-host Jarrett on Wild Pretty Things, or you can find me on Twitter or Letterboxd at Mellow Yellow. Sam, where can people find you? You can find me online at, on Twitter, you can find me on Twitter (laughs) at Sam underscore Morris nine. Melissa, it's always fun to talk with you we enjoy when you come here or we go there uh i also want to challenge our merry band of uh regulars we need to group assemble the top creature features of all time we've seeded the list we've begun so it'll be (laughs) interesting to hear more yeah you can find me on twitter i have Recently, and by recently, I mean this morning, changed my Twitter handle. So you can mm-hmm. find me at the Buy Paradox on Twitter and Letterboxd. You can also find me. So it's it's very it's very Star Trekky by way of Buy. Yeah, by way of Buy. <laughs> you can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club, where my friend Nigel and I are reading through all forty-one of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. You can find that on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we talked about today, what pop culture you've crossed off your list lately, what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes, or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter at Monkey Backlog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back. Yay!